1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kate Aronoff. We talked about what can be expected from the new Biden administration in the United States, both domestically and on foreign policy. We discussed the scale and scope of the administration's stimulus package, where the Republican Party goes next after its defeat at the polls in November, and we also talked about why, in spite of Joe Biden's impressive rhetoric on climate and the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, the US fossil fuel industry still expects a good year ahead under the new Democratic administration. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Breaking Things at Work by Gavin Muller. In this innovative rethinking of labour and machines, Muller traces the Luddite movement from the 19th century textile workers who responded to the introduction of new technologies on the factory floor by smashing them to bits, through to the hackers, pirates and dark web users of today. In doing so, Muller argues that the future stability and empowerment of working class movements will depend on subverting new technologies. Breaking Things at Work is out now from Verso Books and part of their February book club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. Go to versobooks.com for more information. And now to today's interview. Kate Aronoff is a staff writer at The New Republic. She's the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal and the co-editor of We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. So on the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, Biden and centrist Democrats more generally are often criticised from the left for their obsession with bipartisanship, their desire always to compromise with the Republicans. But today the Senate passed the Democratic Budget Resolution, which clears the way for Congress to approve the relief package without Republican support. In your view, does that reflect a newfound bullishness on the part of establishment Democrats, or do you think it maybe more reflects just recognition of how dire the economic outlook is without a very expansive stimulus?
0: Yeah, I think probably a little of column A and a little of column B, but but more so the latter uh, in, in terms of, you know, we, we have seen well over 300,000 people die, um, Unemployment is consistently very high. You know, there's millions of people out of work.
1: So I,
0: I think it's pretty widespread just how dire the situation is. And, you know, the GOP can never be underestimated in terms of just how willing it is to to watch people suffer. Um, but I think even kind of Republican lawmakers have some understanding that, you know, people need um, some kind of basic relief need, you know, the, the sort of basics of vaccine provision and expanded unemployment insurance even and, and these sort of, you know, welfare state things, which seemed really kind of radical uh, a year ago at, at this point, but I, I think have, have started to sort of seep into the mainstream. I, I do think this package is a little bit special in, in that regard. So I, I, I think there's pretty limited lessons we can probably take from what's happened in the last week into, you know, what might happen if Democrats try to pass, you know, a climate bill or even a big recovery package uh, in in, in the coming weeks and months, because there's just this real um, sort of pressing deadline, which historically, you know, for the last couple of years has been just the only way that, that legislation gets passed is if there's some, you know, big budget deal to go through or something really, really pressing that like the government will stop operating or like will not be funded if, if, if it is. And then so the approach has been to just kind of sneak in whatever priority you can into these big bills, which are not about that ostensibly, but, um, is really the only, the only things that pass because we have a sort of horribly Designed, uh, governing system that is just very bad at, um, carrying out, you know, the, the basic work of representative democracy. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's good. And, and, and there's Joe Manchin sort of decrying, you know, that, that, that Democrats just trying to govern essentially without, um, giving the Republicans a total veto power, um, as much as they can. But, you know, I, I, I I'm just a little bit weary to forecast how much how, how much we can read from, yeah from this last week into into the future just because it is it is so exceptional. I mean we're living in exceptional times, but there's a level of, of urgency to, to getting this. Um, to getting this through that I, I think will be a bit more uh, debatable uh, among lawmakers uh, in, in the weeks and months to come.
1: And how progressive do you see the stimulus being in terms of who it's targeting and, and how it perhaps would compare with emergency stimulus measures under the Obama administration, for instance?
0: Well, in general, it's a lot bigger, and I think that's you know something that's important to to sort of take stock of. I mean, all of this sort of talk in the last couple of days about you know people like Larry Summers, who was the former head of the National Economic Council under Obama, pretty famously advised him to really undershoot what the administration's own experts were saying was necessary in terms of the size of a of a stimulus everybody recommended something above a trillion dollars to respond to the great recession and Larry Summers said no you know that'll be unpopular <laughs> We, we do this thing that is objectively necessary. Um, and he's been saying, you know, sort of similar things in the last couple of days, notably not from within the administration. He was not given a job, um, which I think, I think is a, a big victory, um, for, you know, uh, anyone, any progressives or folks on the left, much less anyone interested in seeing Democrats, um, not, you know, lose in, in 2022. But anyway, so he's been, he's been sort of making these same style of critiques that he and many others made in 2008 and 2009 uh and uh it just sort of falling on deaf ears i mean i think the consensus really has sort of shifted uh, among among democrats at, at the very least about you know the size of spending that can happen and the sort of um scope of it so i mean we you know expanding unemployment insurance was a huge huge thing and and there was never you know sort of similar talk about the importance of two thousand dollar checks however much that's being sort of run through the the, the mill of democratic technocrats but I, I do think there's a much much bigger willingness to spend money and and to a, a bit lesser extent to see the state as something which can deliver positive outcomes to people in times of emergency which isn't you know anything really more complicated than kind of basic Keynesian stuff, but that uh, for a whole host of reasons is, has not been popular for the last 20 or 30 years in democratic politics. So, so I think that's, that's changing. That said, you know, this, the stimulus package is not great. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's certainly, you know, ways it could be much bigger. It should be much bigger. Um, you know, there, there's been this debate about the checks and and whether, you know, Democrats are just sort of are going back on the campaign promises that sort of gave them the majority in the Senate, right? Which was that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock campaigned on $2,000 checks um on, on giving people that and almost immediately after they won it got Run through the, the 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 mill of you know well we didn't actually promise two thousand dollar checks two thousand dollars total, all this you know sort of nonsense about um about how much should be given out. But that said, you know I think we'll, we'll get a lot more, and, and that's to the credit of of um, progressives who were really pushing pushing for that within Congress, um, and you know people who were campaigning on it smartly in Georgia, um, you know largely uh, organizations held by black women and uh you know very sort of strong organizational efforts there um but uh but yeah i mean it's it's bigger than than what we would have expected to see 10 years ago but probably you know still just vastly uh inadequate to the to the kind of scale of suffering that's happening
1: So if the Democrat deficit hawks are relatively marginalised at the moment, what about on the Republican side? Because as you say, I mean, much of the terms of the debate is around the size of the stimulus and Republicans have been arguing for something much smaller, but not insignificant numbers, you know, 650 billion or or so. Do you imagine that they will very quickly, as they often do, pivot towards fiscal conservatism and arguing that the deficit needs to be paid down and so on, and that they will very strongly run on that sort of platform soon?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think just based in the last 50 years in the Republican Party. That's that's definitely what we could expect. And yeah, I mean, it's it's always been totally cynical and will be no less so um, in, in, the next, in the next four years uh, to hear them say, you know, complain about the deficit, complain about Democrat spending priorities, that Democrats just want to build entitlements and things like that. The, the, but I, I guess I'm not... I'm just not sure what the Republican Party is going to look like <laughs> in the next four years. I mean, just it's so...
1: Yes, well, we, we might come on to that. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And so, you know, I think that is a baseline, right, that they'll return to these sort of old talking points. But, you know, there, there are just a lot of really whack jobs <laughs> the Republican Party, um, who come out of a long historical tradition of whack jobs in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's had to confirm this week that she believed 9-11 wasn't an inside job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, has been talking about Jewish space lasers and things. Like, I think there's a, there's a sense, I mean, they, they did censor her from, from committee positions. There's a sense among Republicans that that's probably bad for them. Um, but at the same time, like, it would be totally within the tradition of, of the party to just really metabolize that into into itself going forward. Where, like, you could very well see, like, in the way that the GOP metabolized the Tea Party and metabolized Trump and, you know, has, has really taken these sort of fringy ideas into um, into its core. I think that it's it's well within the realm of possibility that that happens with you know, if not QAnon itself and its fellow travelers, and I don't know that there is that sort of core of like, you know, I don't think they're they're all like Hayekians or something or like really sort of devoted neoliberals, you know. And in and, and many ways, are just operating in a different sort of alternate reality than um, than that tradition. So I, I think it sort of remains me be seen. But yeah, I think the baseline is that they'll they'll you know. People like Mitch McConnell will complain about deficits, Um, and I I hope that Democrats are um, too smart now to uh, believe any of, of it.
1: On the unemployment crisis, does it look to you and looking at the stimulus that the Biden administration will respond primarily through attempting to stimulate the economy alongside their sort of belief in the comparative dynamism of the US economy, which is indeed true if if it's being compared, say, with Europe? Or do you think there's any prospect of seriously trying to expand welfare protections in order to, in a more sort of long-term way, in order to shift the US closer to a European model on, on that side of things?
0: I think the messaging has been... Much more so on on the kind of dy- dynamism of the American economy and, and wanting to like do things like revive manufacturing. Biden, one of the first things he did was sign this Buy America order, sort of aimed at a renaissance in, in U.S. manufacturing. At the same time, I mean, the actual substance of the stimulus program so far has been to expand the welfare state. Um, in in sort of small ways but notable ones and, and and in ways that are much bigger than has has happened, you know, in in my lifetime basically. So, I think the kind of louder stuff that will happen will probably be more so about, you know, we're going to fire up economic growth and get factory workers back on the line or, you know, some something like that, which maybe maybe we can talk about that um in in a bit, but I wonder at a baseline, like how much of that is actually possible. Like I am skeptical that the United States will be a manufacturing economy ever again. But, you know, I think expanding the welfare state is just necessary to where we are right now uh, when, you know, it's very difficult for people to go uh, to work and, and, you know, just for like public health reasons with a, with a pandemic. And so, That'll be great, you know. A sort of quiet expansion of the welfare state is something that um, is, is 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 very certainly needed. But yeah, I, I mean, I think as we move hopefully, you know, away from the depths of the pandemic and toward a place where you know more and more sorts of like big economic activity is possible, I think you know we'll sort of see. But but yeah, I'm I'm a little skeptical that, <laughs> that however much rhetoric rhetoric there is about returning. The United States to its kind of mid-century glory days, um, which I I would argue were not glory days for, for many people, uh, but I, I'm I'm sure that will be an attempt uh, in the rhetoric, and I'm I'm not sure how much that'll that'll actually deliver.
1: Going back to your point regarding the radicalization of the Republican Party, so the election result appeared to show that in spite of the Democrat victory, there's actually quite a lot of mileage in, in Trumpism. Trump, after all, did substantially increase his vote share on, on the 2016 result. And it may be that there's comparatively little future in the more traditional conservative politics that you describe being associated with somebody like Mitch McConnell. Just in terms of the composition of, of Congress and the Senate, how does the party break down in terms of the three-way split of Republican lawmakers, of those who are still wedded to Trumpism, those who are now distancing themselves from their prior support for Trump, and then the so-called never-Trumpers, those who just never accommodated themselves to, to Trump's leadership?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question, because I think individuals are sort of themselves all drifting <laughs> through various categories. And there um, are people sort of trying to hold up different, polls of that and I'm, I'm i'm just not sure you know where where that'll resolve itself or like what the kind of dominant stream within those will be um of the republican party i mean like i said like i, I my best guess would be that you know the sort of fresh blood in the republican party most probably notably in freshman members like uh, marjorie taylor green who we talked about or madison cawthorne sort of pathological liar seemingly who uh, is is really tr- you know trying to endear himself to a kind of trump trump base um, my guess would be that they really you know have some kind of future in the party and then you have you know the kind of like Trump loyalist who I think more than any kind of like steadfast commitment to whatever we sort of conceive of as trumpism are interested in kind of riding that wave and recognizing that, you know, Trump did bring a lot of people out to vote for him in, in 2020 and kind of want to capitalize that, you know, people like Josh Hawley I'm, I'm talking about, or, or Ted Cruz, who, you know, stoked the the attack on the Capitol and are really accountable to Republican base, which for, for a lot of reasons, is just encouraged to get increasingly nuts. Uh, you know, there's, there's just sort of a, a no upward limit on how much Republican Voters can engage in kind of conspiracy theories and, you know, just really blatant racism and, and xenophobia. Um, like the Republican parties just move steadily to the right and there's no reason with, within the structure of the U.S. electoral politics for that to change. I mean, like the good, there's really just no cap to stop that from happening just because, you know, these, these Republican politicians are just talking to a base which is increasingly radicalized because there's no, um, I mean, there are a million reasons for this, but some of which is gerrymandering, some of which is, you know, just the structure of the U.S. Senate giving really outsized vote share to very small sort of uh, rural parts of the country, which contain a very tiny proportion of the population. Anyway, so, you know, there, there are just many structural reasons why um, the Republicans can just keep moving to the right. Um, I think the question is, like, whether that keeps working out for them electorally. Uh, indefinitely into the future. I think Trump was something sort of special in that regard, where I think it it really does remain to be seen how many people are excited to come out and vote for, for a midterm ticket without Trump on the ballot. But I think something that is very likely to keep happening is that you will see what I hesitate to call Republican moderates being primaried by Trumpists or QAnon people or, you know, the, just, you know, Republican primaries, which keep electing increasingly wild people to Congress in the sort of Marjorie Taylor Greene
1: bent. Some people are talking about almost an inevitable split at some point in the Republican Party, that it's just not in the long term possible for, for the kind of respectable country club Republicans, you know, however awful their views may be, but they do have that sort of veneer of respectability to them. That the idea of sort of holding the party together with, with both them and the QAnon supporters and so on, that that's just not tenable in the long term. But do you think they will reconcile
0: yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a good question because parties just kept moving to the right, um, since basically like Barry Goldwater. Uh, and increasingly those sort of like country club Republicans, the, the kind of like William F. Buckley wing who were themselves like vile racists in their own, in their own way, um, that represents big segments of capital, like historically sort of big manufacturers and, and things like that. That could split off from the kind of QAnon people and conspiracy theorists and, and all that and the, and the kind of Trump base, but it could also just you know become the same thing <laughs> as it as it has historically. I mean a, a really great thing would be for one of those two things to split off and become its own party and, and it would be functionally left out of any governing body because we have a first path to both system, which is very hard on, on any kind of third party. So that would be great, actually, if, if, you know, a third party run sort of captured some super majority of either the kind of old, old guard Republicans or QAnon and, and just rendered them like electorally irrelevant. I think the kind of will to power is too strong within the GOP for that, for that to happen. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think where it ends up, I think it still is is just genuinely sort of a a big question. I think one thing that I'm slightly worried about is that depending on how a Biden administration goes, that, you know, the Democratic Party becomes a home for Republicans who want to, you know, fancy themselves as more respectable, the kind of, whether like never Trumpers themselves or, you know, even like people like, marco rubio who was a tea partier right (laughs) like the uh people not that long ago consider the sort of like far right of of the party and democrats sort of opening themselves up to that uh you know disgruntled like republicans
1: yes all all too easy to imagine when one thinks of the bizarre place that john mccain seems to hold in the hearts for instance of, of a lot of democrats or george bush <laughs> yeah indeed, or. indeed. yeah or, or donald trump in 10 years time
0: yeah 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 i mean I, maybe we'll you know he'll take up painting and, and be a beloved figure
1: i would actually quite like to see donald trump's doorbings. i think there might be an interesting insight into his psychology
0: oh god yeah
1: <laughs> So on foreign policy, when he was commenting on his executive orders, obviously a lot of that was around domestic policy, but nonetheless, Joe Biden remarks that I'm not making new law, I'm eliminating bad policy. And I was wondering if, if when it comes to foreign policy in particular, is this how the administration conceives of itself and conceives of what it's doing, that it's repealing the actions of the Trump administration rather than trying to plot a new course?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's broadly. Right. I mean, foreign policy is sort of an interesting facet of the Biden administration because I think it's in contrast even to something like climate or other aspects of domestic policy. Foreign policy has a sort of like core of real old heads who were around either in the Obama administration or in the Clinton administration, even who really just want to keep up keep up course and, and, you know, get back to kind of business as usual in, in, in U S foreign policy. Um, and, and I think the, there's like a mix of like interpersonal and institutional reasons why that's the case, but the foreign policy establishment, I think is more sort of tightly defined than almost anything else on, on, on domestic, um, On domestic policy, Um, you know the blob, as it's it's been called, is this like crew of crew of like State Department insiders, um, who many of which have gotten gotten their jobs back, including people like Tony Blinken,
1: the new Secretary of State.
0: Yes, Secretary of State. So, you know, I think I watched a couple of the confirmation hearings for these folks, and it's just it's such an interesting dynamic because because I mean I I fell a climate and and they're. We can probably talk about this in in a bit, but, but there does seem to be this understanding among people coming into jobs which historically have not had anything to do with climate that, you know, this will be an administrative priority in the State Department, even in the Department of Defense, even things like Treasury Uh that this is a really sort of whole government approach to climate change is is, is good in, in some sense. But then, you know, you also have Tony Blinken in his confirmation hearing broadly agreeing with these really sort of hawkish lines uh, coming from people like Mitt Romney and Republicans about about China. And, you know, they'll say that the way and the tactics the Trump administration used with regards to its relationship to China, things like the trade war, tariffs, all that sort of stuff, that that was, you know, a little bit unseemly. We don't want to do that. That's, you know, the wrong way to go about this. But that on the substance, Trump was right, you know, that, that China is a major threat to to the US for sort of undefined reasons. Uh, and that it, it will be a focus of his administration to really, you know, compete with and, and go up against the Chinese Communist Party, which is, is is was just really clear, watching any any sort of foreign policy adjacent confirmation hearing and just their their sort of positioning on on this. So yeah, I mean, I think it, the attempt will be to reestablish business as usual within within foreign policy, probably the most the most strongly of any of any place.
1: Well, maybe come on to China, but do you think that that's actually plausible in in the international context. I was reading recently an article in Foreign Affairs by Jonathan Kirshner, who wrote that the world cannot unsee the Trump presidency. From this point forward, countries around the globe will have to calculate their interests and expectations with the understanding that the Trump administration is the sort of thing that the US political system can plausibly produce. So do you think the administration might be sort of over-optimistic in their belief that they can sort of Put back together the so-called Pax Americana of international alliances around the world, and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the Trump administration didn't come out of nowhere, obviously, and I, I think that increasingly, even you know, very like stalwart U.S. allies um, in places like the EU are just skeptical of, of of what they can expect from the U.S. I mean, no less so, right, than than on climate, but. You know, Pax Americana sort of premised on this idea that the U.S. was a stable negotiating partner, and that would be a sort of you know reliable buoy in, in the international system. That you know was was such a sort of pillar of strength um, for protecting you know the interests of, um, of of kind of the West, and that it, it just looks really unclear. And I think Trump was. I don't think he he did that himself, you know. I, th- I think we we are all too eager to forget the Bush administration and, um, you know, the the war on terror and just how much um,
1: the unipolar moment. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I just you know, there's no real reason for I for in to the EU or um, you know, for for much of the world to really take much stock in in what the US says, because you know we, we have Biden now, a foreign policy infrastructure that wants to. Get back to business as usual, but it's totally within the realm of possibility that we elect someone more nuts than Trump in twenty twenty four, and that really basic instability is not something that you know any center right government is, is, is super comfortable with. And I think expecting that the U S. will like play the role that it has for the last hundred years or so just just is something that just doesn't make much sense <laughs> increasingly for for anyone you know uh, looking at us.
1: If we maybe come on to China. So in a recent article in in The New Republic, you argued that on foreign policy, the Biden administration will have to choose between not unimpressive climate goals, which includes a target of decarbonizing the, the US economy by 2050, but it will have to choose between that and pursuing a new cold war with China. And you make the point that responding effectively to the climate emergency will necessitate cooperation with China, as well as ensuring that the US has access to China's green technologies, which obviously the country is, is, a, is a world leader in. Couldn't an argument be made and we see some of this in the liberal commentary at the moment, that there could be some kind of benign competition between China and the United States that would include vying for dominance of, of clean technologies in, in the global market and that they would sort of spur each other on to innovation in that field. And perhaps that's also informed by a certain perception of the Cold War among some liberals that there were benign side effects in terms of technological developments, but also that the sort of ideological competition allowed for or made possible relatively generous welfare programs in order to protect the prestige of of liberal democratic forms of governance, both in the US and also abroad. So can you explain why you don't think there really is a prospect of that benign competition?
0: I think the line is pretty thin between between those two things right because I'm, I'm not in in the piece sort of saying that, that any sort of competition is bad like i don't i don't think it's a bad thing for instance for the u.s to want to increase the amount of green manufacturing that happens domestically or you know to to decouple in sort of very limited ways uh things like mineral production to you know make it possible to to um harvest the kind of like critical technology minerals needed um, for a big scale up of clean energy, for instance, or to make more wind turbines or, you know, photovoltaics here. That, that I think is fine basically, right. To, to, you know, be trying to build up uh, capacities for clean energy, which today, you know, largely exist in, in China. So I don't, I don't think that's, um, that's totally beyond the pale At all. I think where that becomes dangerous and, you know, where I get nervous about that kind of line of argument from, from liberals who, um, you know, are, are, are very, you know, playing in, wading into some very hawkish waters, um, about, about the U.S.-China relationship, um, is that the time is just so limited, right? We, we have roughly 10 years, right? To, to really, seriously decarbonize, uh, the, the U S economy, um, and the global economy within, you know, by, by 2050. Um, and that is on the one hand, sort of a technical challenge, right? We just need to scale up, um, green energy in the U S and all over the world as quickly as humanly possible. And I think it's pretty foolish to think that the U S will come to dominate export markets for green energy, along that timeline. Like I just don't see a world, you know, talking to to people who, who study this stuff pretty closely, in which the US becomes the sort of dominant exporter of battery technology or of wind turbines or of solar you know, solar panels and things like that, uh, or EVs, for instance. You know, that <laughs> I think that the, the timeline is just off, right? Even if that's a worthy goal to work toward, um, that, you know, by 2050 or something, a uh, vast majority of of batteries are made in the US. I, you know, I don't, I don't have particularly strong feelings about that. But for the time that we have, which is so, so short, not all of that production is going to happen in the US. It's not all going to be made in America and that has to be okay.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.